A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. We have learned, too, that the cost of defending freedom of defending America must be paid in many forms and in many places. Unassisted, Vietnam cannot, at this time, produce and support the military formations essential to it. Military, as well as economic help, is currently needed in Vietnam. U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower, speaking in 1959, pledging America's support to South Vietnam, then under threat from the Communist North, which was heavily backed by the USSR and China. By 1964, America was deeply embroiled in a conflict which over the next decade would claim millions of lives, including almost 60,000 US servicemen. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. But this is really war. It is guided by North Vietnam and it is spurred by Communist China. Its goal is to conquer the South and to extend the Asiatic dominion of communism. And there are great stakes in the balance. So how did the Vietnam War come about and who were its major players? Why did the attitudes and actions of American presidents differ? And how did Americans at home shape the outcome of the war? I'm Rob Weinberg, and to answer the big questions about this devastating conflict, I've been speaking to Kevin Ruane, Professor of Modern History at Canterbury Christchurch University. This is How and Why History. Kevin Ruane, thanks for joining us. How did the American war in Vietnam originate? For most people, the start of the American war can be dated to 1965. That's the year of escalation, so-called, when the United States began bombing communist North Vietnam and also sending the first numbers of US ground troops to South Vietnam. I say numbers, by 1968 there'll be half a million US ground troops in South Vietnam, but those ground troops are there to keep America's ally, South Vietnam, safe against its internal enemies, the communist guerrillas of the Viet Cong, and against its northern communist neighbour. But America's involvement in Vietnam itself can be predated by some years. You could go right back to 1950, for example, when the French were fighting in Vietnam. The American War is really the successor to the first Vietnam War of the post-war era, that is the French War. And in 1950, the United States began aiding and supporting the French in their war against the communist-led nationalists of the Viet Minh. 
So long-term origins, you need to go right back to 1950. Short-term origins, early 60s, but peaking 65 onwards, the year of escalation. Why did this conflict then emerge? For the United States, the war was posited in Cold War terms. The United States becomes involved in Vietnam in the first place because of its commitment to a Cold War strategy evolved in the late 1940s called containment. They are seeking to contain the spread of international communism. Vietnam in the late 40s, early 50s was itself the scene of a French war. The French had colonised, or at least there'd been imperial expansion, colonial expansion by France in Southeast Asia. In the 19th century, the French had ruled Vietnam and neighbouring Laos and Cambodia for um, the better part of 80 years down to 1945. And 1946, France finds itself confronted for the first time in its imperial tenure with a serious threat to its imperial primacy. It's a threat from a communist-led nationalist movement known as the Viet Minh. And the French War begins, therefore, in 1946. By 1950, the French are struggling somewhat. 1950, the Americans are also beginning to look on Vietnam as maybe some kind of trigger domino in Southeast Asia. The United States will begin to aid the French. What that means in 1950, when President Truman starts that aid programme, is that the Stars and Stripes are planted in Vietnam alongside the French tricolour. It means as well that if the French were to tire or look like they were going to be defeated or just walk away, the United States, consciously or otherwise, has positioned itself to take over. And that's exactly what happens in 1954. The First War, the French War, ends. Vietnam is partitioned into a North and a South, a Communist North and a non-Communist South. It's meant to be temporary, but the United States takes over from the French in seeking to prop up and preserve South Vietnam, which we can now call it from 1954, the bottom half, if you like, of the trigger domino of Southeast Asia and successive US governments from Eisenhower through to Kennedy in the early 60s and then Johnson in 1965. Well, they are in Vietnam to prop up South Vietnam, the legacy of the French war, and they're in Vietnam as well because of their allegiance to this concept of Cold War containment. The US's greatest involvement was in South Vietnam then? The United States from 1954, when the French begin to disengage, sets out to create in South Vietnam a model of liberal capitalist development and a model of anti-communism. That is first and foremost the priority for the United States. By the early 1960s, the state of South Vietnam, which the Americans have done so much to bring into being and prop up, is beginning now to face a dual threat. A threat from within, homegrown southern communist guerrilla force known as the Viet Cong, and from without, communist North Vietnam. So America's priority is preserving South Vietnam, and to do that will require ultimately war with North Vietnam. Who were the major political players uh, during the conflict? Well, if we talk about major political players, um, and accepting that no president is an island, that they are themselves um, advised at every turn. It is convenient to maybe talk about the presidents just for a moment. 
and to maybe play around with this idea of the domino theory. Everybody knows what the domino theory means in Cold War terms, but there's a kind of presidential domino theory going on here. In 1950, President Truman begins aid to the French. In 1954, President Eisenhower, when the French pull out and Vietnam is divided, begins to um, aid and abet and uh, nurture South Vietnam. And when President Kennedy comes in in 1961, this state of South Vietnam is beginning to wobble a little bit and it's going to need additional support, particularly military support against its enemies. So President Kennedy increases the American advisory mission, no combat troops, no formal military intervention, but he starts aiding in a heightened sense the South Vietnamese government and armed forces and Kennedy himself gifts therefore to his successor in 1963 when Kennedy's assassinated Lyndon B. Johnson, gifts an already increasing snowballing if you like US commitment which Johnson then takes on and runs with but it's Johnson who happens to be on duty at the time when this problem called the Vietnam War escalates into uh, in, into the great uh, confrontation that most people most people think about. Johnson will bow out in 1969 and he will knock into Richard Nixon, the Nixon domino. And Nixon is the first president in this sequence who, while not wanting America to be humiliated, is seeking to get America out. So those um, presidential dominoes, I think, give us a little, a little sequence of how things work from that side. On the Vietnamese side, the towering dominating figure is Ho Chi Minh. Um, who is really the most important figure in modern Vietnamese history. Ho Chi Minh, a uh, uh, founding member of the French Communist Party, a founding member of the Vietnamese Communist Party, and a man who is this towering, inspiring presence on the communist side until his death in 1969. But just as it's not just presidents, um, it's, quite, it's, it's wrong to just talk about presidents, but it is a useful shorthand. It's not just Ho Chi Minh. There is also other key political figures, one of whom will succeed him in 1969, a man called Lei Zuan. But Lei Zuan is really controlling things for some years before 1969, as Ho is getting older and more infirm. And finally, on the communist side, I think uh, it is a war after all. And the towering military figure for the Vietnamese is a man called General Vo Nguyen Jap, who is the, is the, is the military colossus of the Vietnam War and that side of things, and uh, former history teacher. So beware annoying history teachers, you never quite know what they'll morph into. So up until Nixon becoming president, was there a genuine feeling of the rightness of this conflict? At a political and military level, I think that all the presidents up to Nixon and their administrations buy into, if you like, the Cold War consensus of the time. And so there is a country called South Vietnam, which America has great responsibility for having brought into being. It is important to prevent communism taking over South Vietnam because that will be the whole of Vietnam then gone and that will be a trigger that will knock into neighboring Laos and Cambodia and Thailand and Malaya or later Malaysia. Um, dominoes moving off in different directions as well. So the Cold War consensus takes in containment, it takes in the domino theory, it takes in the need to honour commitments to a state that owes its existence somewhat to the United States. So all those things are shared by the Eisenhowers and the Kennedys and the Johnsons. But if Cold War factors explain why America gets involved, 
doesn't quite explain why from 1965, when their escalation begins in earnest, why America doesn't prevail. So there is a limit to this Cold War analysis. It is after 65, when the war goes big, that you are going to have arguments and disputes within the United States government. American media will be involved in this as well, questioning the nature of warfare, the correctness of the warfare tactics, etc. But even right through to 1968, I think it's wrong to think that the US media was against the war. I think the US media is sometimes against the way the war is being prosecuted. But until 1968, pivotal year, pivotal moment in the Vietnam story, the year of the Tet Offensive, I think that consensus holds good. But 68 is the year that Nixon selected as well. Nixon inherits a get out strategy or a get out mindset rather than a get on mindset. And there was huge popular dissent against the war, was there not? Historians who study this uh, will tell you, first of all, that before 1965, the anti-war movement, so-called, is, is there. There are plenty of um, concerned Americans about the way things are going in Vietnam concerned about America's growing involvement in Vietnam, but it really, really gets going, as you'd expect, once escalation gets going in 1965, once the draft is brought in because this war is now consuming manpower at a dizzying rate. So that's a game changer and it gives a sort of real boost to the anti-war movement. Except I've been using the word movement in the singular. Historians will talk about a movement of movements, plural. Many people who fall under the umbrella in America of anti-war movement they've got different reasons for being under that umbrella and finding a single cohesive unit called the the movement is is rather difficult it is also possibly overrated as a factor in changing u.s policy one of the great flipovers in this story occurs in 1968 in january 1968 the communists launch the single most audacious coordinated nationwide offensive of the war in South Vietnam. They do it to coincide with the Lunar New Year holiday, Tet, and initially it's stunningly successful, but the United States with the South Vietnamese army ends up turning it round. Now, this is a, a pivot moment because up until the point of the Tet Offensive, which was launched, President Johnson, amongst others, have been reassuring the American people for some months that there was light at the end of the tunnel, that after three years of escalation, America was kind of getting there, and that the war was being won. Well, then along comes the Tet Offensive. And even though Tet turns out to be a costly defeat, it's the fact Tet happened at all that's really, really important. That if America was winning the war, as Johnson said it had been, Tet shouldn't have happened. And Tet also produces a recrudescence of anti-war protests, protests on the street, the media is against the war. And lo and behold, 31st of March 1968, LBJ goes on Nationwide TV and says, no more bombing, basically, of North Vietnam, no more troops to South Vietnam, and he's not going to run for a second term as US president in an election year. He's going to devote his last months in office to peace in Southeast Asia. There is no need to delay the talks that could bring an end to this long and this bloody war. Tonight, I renew the offer I made last August to stop the bombardment of North Vietnam. We ask that talks begin promptly, that they be serious talks on the substance of peace. We assume that during those talks, Hanoi will not take advantage of our restraint. We are prepared to move immediately 
toward peace through negotiations. So tonight, in the hope that this action will lead to early talks, I am taking the first step to de-escalate the conflict. We are reducing, substantially reducing, the present level of hostilities. And we are doing so unilaterally and at once. Tonight I have ordered our aircraft and our naval vessels to make no attacks on North Vietnam except in the area north of the demilitarized zone where the continuing enemy buildup directly threatens Allied forward positions and where the movement of their troops and supplies are clearly related to that threat. The area in which we are stopping our attacks includes almost 90 percent of North Vietnam's population and most of its territory. Now, on the face of it, it is the collapse on the domestic home front, the fracturing and spine of support for the war, the anti-war protests, the way American society seems to be convulsing itself in ways it hasn't done since the Civil War. It's that which has turned the Johnson administration from escalation to a negotiated exit. Except if you look closely at the decision-making process, if you get down deep into the documentary record of why the Johnson administration makes that flip over. Well, at a military level, it's beginning to recognize this might be an unwinnable war, that this is a war that um, America could wage for a long, long time without ever winning, and the costs in blood and treasure were going to continue to be terrible. It is a war that is doing nothing for the US economy. It's a war that's doing nothing for America's reputation in the world with the perception of the United States as a military industrial superpower bombing the hell out of a apparently defenseless third world country. Lots of other factors in the mix. You look at it and something that Johnson and those around him are not saying is, oh yeah, the anti-war movement is right, or we need to do this to quieten the domestic front. There are many factors involved and maybe that domestic factor is not decisive in governmental decision making. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
it's a war that's very familiar from films like Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, Born on the Fourth of July. What kind of warfare was being carried out during that war and what were the psychological and physical impact on the American soldiers that were fighting there? Well, from 1965, there's really two wars and it's important to delineate between them. The United States will not invade North Vietnam. It will not send a single soldier into North Vietnam. From 1965, America wages an air war against North Vietnam. So this is the bombing of North Vietnam with the objective, this is Operation Rolling Thunder. Um, so for three years, with a number of bombing halts to wait and see how North Vietnam reacts, uh, Rolling Thunder is designed to do one of two things, I think. One is to so pummel North Vietnam that it says, stop bombing us, at which point the United States says, well, we'll stop bombing you if you stop aiding and, and abetting the Viet Cong in the South. And if North Vietnam does not say, stop bombing us, just carries on, at least the bombing will degrade the ability, in theory at least, of North Vietnam to supply the war in the South. So air war against North Vietnam, it has to be said that Operation Rolling Thunder is not regarded as being spectacularly successful in doing either of those things. For one thing, North Vietnam doesn't give up. For another thing, it doesn't spectacularly degrade its ability to supply the war in the South. So as, a, as an example of strategic bombing, it's not a great success. Now, why does the bombing start in the first place in 1965? It starts in the first place because America's priority is to keep South Vietnam together. So you want to weaken the enemy without, but there is an enemy within, it's the Viet Cong. And so from 1965 onwards, the United States will send increasing numbers of ground troops to fight in the jungles and paddy fields and mountains of South Vietnam. And by early 1968, there's over 500,000 US troops in country, as the phrase was. Here is the war perhaps more familiar to people who have seen it through the work of Oliver Stone and other um, Vietnam movie film directors. It's the war of search and destroy. It's the war of jungle patrols. It's the war of platoon, the movie. It's the war of Zippo raids and so on and so forth. If anybody wants a real sense of what it was like to be an American soldier in that context and how Ordinary Americans, kids from Iowa farms or from, from the Bronx, who might have lived out the law-abiding normal life in America, yet are sent to Vietnam and things change them and not for the better. And I'm not talking about the extremes here of atrocities, although there were atrocities, but just how this war changes them. Philip Caputo, a rumour of war still in print as a brilliant evocation of what it was like to be an American soldier in that context and how the most tyrannical of all human emotions, the desire to survive, can make people do pretty ghastly things. So Philip Caputo, rumour of war, Pulitzer Prize winner. But the last thing I'd say in response to this question is I'm uneasy about positing this war purely in American terms or French terms. This was a war that mostly happened to Vietnamese and happened on Vietnamese soil. And one of the things you see in scholarship these days, rightly, is saying America doesn't have a monopoly on suffering in this war, nor did the French before them, and that we really, really need to give to the greatest extent possible the Vietnamese a role in their own history and their own story. 
So what I've been saying about the Americans can be just as easily applied to the other side. And what was the extent of the casualties, both on the American side and Vietnamese citizens and militia? The American War Memorial, this huge granite structure in Washington, D.C. on the Mall there, if you, if you ever visit it, I think you'll find there's around 59,000 names on that wall. So that's more or less the accepted, rounded up total of American casualties in this war. As I say, even though President Jimmy Carter later on, uh, Jimmy Carter, who's regarded as a man of great humanitarian liberal instincts, observed that the damage was mutual when he spoke of Vietnam and America. Well, it might have been mutual, but it was also rather disproportionate. So 59,000 dead Americans is a very tragic figure, but very hard to be precise on this. But if you add in neighbouring Laos and Cambodia, into which the conflict in Vietnam would spill violently at times, you're talking of between two and a half, maybe, and three million. So this is a huge, huge conflict, which scars, really, the first 20 or 30 years of the post-war era, really. What was the most significant reason for America's defeat? We could spend a long time on this individual factors are put forward by military historians for example who say the United States overrated the value and efficacy of modern military technology in terrain and contexts that were simply inappropriate for it and you can flip it on its head as well and say that the more relevant question is maybe not why America lost but why the communists won again look at what they did that was right but if you are focusing on America, there's two broad macro reasons why America lost, and uh, two theories in other words, and very briefly they are the quagmire theory and the stalemate theory. Now the quagmire theory will tell you that from Kennedy on through Johnson and then into Nixon and even Eisenhower and Truman before them, each president took or made a commitment to Vietnam which they reasonably supposed would be the final commitment they would need to make. Truman gives the French some money. Eisenhower backs a state called South Vietnam. Kennedy sends advisers. Johnson has to send full combat force. But each president took a decision thinking that might be the last decision needed in order to prevail. But what we see happen is that every commitment simply led to an ensuing commitment and to an escalatory process, a ladder of escalation that saw America by the mid-60s caught deep in a quicksand or a quagmire war. It was a war that no president wanted, that no president anticipated, and it was a war that America couldn't lose in any military sense, but couldn't win in any definitive sense either. So that's one explanation. America ends up stumbling into an unwinnable war and eventually does a cost-benefit analysis and decides to quit and take the hit. The other more controversial explanation focuses mostly on Kennedy and Johnson. It's the stalemate theory. Both Kennedy and Johnson never took the necessary steps to win the war. That Johnson, for example, although if you think of 65 to 68, half a million ground troops, Operation Rolling Thunder against North Vietnam, it looks awesome. There was no single attempt to 
bombed North Vietnam in a kind of aerial Armageddon way. North Vietnam was bombed gradually, the targets were gradually expanded, it's kind of creeping up geographically, North Vietnam. Doesn't bomb the heart of Hanoi, doesn't bomb the heart of Haiphong, the principal port of North Vietnam. In the south, Johnson drip feeds over three years half a million troops in. There's no surge of half a million in one go. And Historians who subscribe to stalemate suggest that what Johnson, and to some extent Kennedy before him, was trying to do was to try and keep the lid on the Vietnam War, to do just enough to preserve South Vietnam, but no more because Johnson in particular had other things he wanted to do with his time and his money. And when we're talking about Johnson, we're talking about his hugely ambitious social reform programme called the Great Society, which Johnson launches really in 1964 in earnest. LBJ said in his first State of the Union address that uh, he declared war. But he didn't declare war on North Vietnam, he declared war on poverty in America. That's really what he wanted to do. What would you say has been the lasting significance of America's involvement in Vietnam? Nothing lasts forever. I think for some 15 years after 1975, the Americans pull out in 1973, the Paris Peace Settlement, 1973. Two years later, 1975, the Communist North takes over the South, 1976, you have the birth of what is today the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. But for some 15 years after the end of the war in 1975, in US terms, I think something called the Vietnam Syndrome prevailed. Historians will talk quite a lot about this idea of the Vietnam Syndrome. What it really means is never again. Never again will we employ the power to destroy, which we possess in bucket loads, to achieve geopolitical aims. Never again will we use our military muscle in such a way. We will try and pursue our objectives on the world scene using clever diplomacy and statesmanship and hopefully accumulated wisdom from experience. We do see that Vietnam syndrome at work. But then comes the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990 and then the American-led Desert Storm to liberate Kuwait and George Herbert Walker Bush, the older President Bush, famously on that occasion when that uh, liberation of Kuwait is effected, declares, by God, we've kicked the Vietnam Syndrome now. Because what's happened over the previous few years is the Vietnam Syndrome has morphed from never again, period, to never again unless next time we go in with full force and have an exit strategy. And that, to some extent, is what you see with that first Gulf War, except that I don't think the Vietnam Syndrome had been kicked, because there are historians who know far more about the Middle East than I do who would say that the Vietnam Syndrome was still there in 1991, because that war was really unfinished. So the Vietnam Syndrome is one of the lasting legacies, even if what the Vietnam Syndrome means is contested terrain, both by historians and practitioners of the political arts in the Oval Office. But really what I personally would hope the lesson of Vietnam would be, would be simply that the power to destroy should not always be seen as the power to prevail or the power to succeed, that this is probably pie in the sky on my part though. Why has the American war in Vietnam been so widely remembered and immortalised, really, in so many films and images? Well, I think remembering depends on where you stand in, on, this, on, this whole, on this whole issue. 
I think initially, in and after 1975 for a few years in the United States, there was no great desire to remember this thing at all. This was, this was a defeat, this was a humiliation, and it was a tragedy. It was a tragedy for the United States, it was a tragedy for all concerned, not least the Vietnamese. Then during the 1980s, Ronald Reagan arrives on the scene and there is a different kind of remembering that Reagan calls the American struggle in Vietnam, although it was unsuccessful in the end, as a noble cause, quote unquote. And it's in the 80s that you really begin to see this tidal wave of Hollywood movies, which are not all critical of involvement by any means. I think that even the Rambo series um, is implying that if the United States had not been forced by craven politicians like the Democrat LBJ to fight with one hand tied behind the back, you'd had a few more John Rambos, you might have prevailed. But there's, there's a whole uh, multiplicity of emotions and memory going on there. The other form in which, in America at least, the memory of Vietnam is palpable, I think, is in presidential elections. I think probably the election of Barack Obama in 2008, that was the first election. Well, even that one, actually, because John McCain, the John McCain factor as well as a, as a sort of decorated veteran of the Vietnam War. Vietnam seems to have an impact on top presidential leadership. I think probably the 2012 election will be the first one without an overt aspect of this to it. But uh, Bill Clinton's stand on the Vietnam War was always pondered. John Kerry as a Democratic candidate was pondered. George W. Bush, whether he managed to avoid uh, having to fight in the Vietnam War. It's where you stood as a president on the Vietnam War in the United States, what you'd been doing if you were old enough to be doing something, that really did have some kind of political purchase for a long time. But we are moving on from that. I think the memory is becoming more distant. The proliferation of Hollywood movies is becoming less and less. Professor Kevin Ryan, thank you. How and why history? Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. 
Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.